So you're gonna help me move the skull? Sure. Yeah. Heck yeah. Okay, so just start putting her together yeah, then. You can start putting her together. Feel free to tell a story. Yeah. Well, the real trick is trying not to make a mistake because it would look terrible on video. <laughs> That's fair. So, like, is this the right side? Is this the right side? It's actually. <laughs> the vertebrae are neat. This is the first one. It basically attaches to the back of the skull. And the first few neck vertebrae, there are some that are fused, and then others are really compact. So the vertebrae are really, really neat. And just like with our backbone, there's different regions. So you've got neck, chest, lower back, and tail vertebrae. And it's a matter of organizing them according to size. And then everything out to the side, the actual fluke, has no real bony support inside of it. Now these are chevron bones that basically sit under the vertebrae, and I, we don't have these organized by size, but they would, uh, they're basically a support for blood vessels. These are the shoulder blades. I don't have all the fingers lined up exactly as they should be. And, uh, but yeah, that's effectively a flipper would look like that when, when it's prepared. And they're, they're just little slivers. Um, and that's, that's basically how a whale is put together. I'm Mark Larian, and thanks for joining me for Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. This episode, we're taking the podcast back to our inspiration, orcas. And it's a deep dive into how orcas are put together, literally. I've written four books and a documentary about whales, but one of the most amazing things I've ever had the chance to write is the current exhibit at the Royal BC Museum, Orcas, Our Shared Future. I didn't just get to write the exhibit, I was a consultant on it as it came together. So this exhibit includes some of the stories of my all-time favorite orcas, including Moby Doll, the star of my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. The exhibit features life-sized models of three J-Pod whales, Ruffles, Slick, and Scarlet, and the other big star, the reconstructed skeleton of Rhapsody. While I was working on my book, Orcas Everywhere, I thought, wouldn't it be cool for readers to see what an orca skeleton looks like? And since I was already hanging around the museum, my friend Gavin Hankey, the curator of vertebrate zoology, or, you know, the bone guy, offered to put Rhapsody together so our producer, Rain Banu, could film them in action. So this episode, we're going to share a bit of the play-by-play -play as Gavin laid out Rhapsody's skeleton for us with a bit of my help. And you'll hear Rain and one of our interns, Clarita Ritchie, asking some of the questions about Rhapsody, orcas, and the parts of the museum that the public doesn't usually get to see. Okay, also a special bonus, we've put together a couple of videos showing Rhapsody coming together, and the links are in our show notes. Seriously, visit our show notes, visit our Scanna YouTube channel, you're going to want to check this out. Now, we didn't originally plan to use this as a podcast, so apologies if some of the questions are a bit quiet. 
Also, near the end of this, we mentioned another Scana guest, Orca Captivity expert Jason Colby. Now, Jason had taken his class to visit Gavin right before our visit. We mentioned that near the end. You can check out my interview with Jason on your favorite podcast provider. As always, Scana is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com. So if you like what we're doing, please help us share more stories more often by joining our pod and sponsoring us at patreon.com. You can also visit our site, scana.org, where you can make one-time donations via Ko-fi. Also, please subscribe. Also, please check out our new podcast, Orca Bites, where we feature shorter bite-sized interviews about orcas, oceans, ecoethics, and the environment with our guests like Wade Davis, David Suzuki, Alexandra Morton, and Carl Safina. And now, Gavin Hankey on life at the Royal BC Museum and the life, death, and anatomy of Rhapsody, the star of the Royal BC Museum's fantastic exhibit, Orcas, our shared future, which is at the museum throughout 2021 before touring the world. Just like with our backbone, there's different regions. So you've got neck, chest, and then there were lower back and tail vertebrae. How many vertebrae are there in total? To be honest, I've never counted. Um, we can do that. But the, the first few are fused, so that will kind of skew the count. Right. I'm not sure exactly how many are fused together in the very first element right behind the skull. When we get down to the last few in the tail, they're just little blocks, basically. How many bones does the whale, the whale tail? The, well, the, there's nothing in the tail. Nothing in the, oh, okay. The, the actual tail flukes are all connective tissue. Oh, okay. So there's, a, there's just, the, ver the actual backbone comes down to the center, and then everything out to the side, the actual fluke, has no real bony support inside of it. Yeah, so the last few are just like tiny little nubbins, really. Okay, tell us about Rhapsody. Well, Rhapsody, uh, obviously a very popular animal, uh, uh, favorite of, of the whale watchers. Uh, she washed up, or actually didn't wash up, she was towed to shore. She was found floating dead. Uh, it was near Christmas, actually. I think it was 2014, if memory serves correctly. And uh, yeah, she was towed to shore and Fisheries and Oceans planned to do a necropsy. Um, we knew her age, 18 years old. She had a full-term fetus that had died and the resulting infection killed her. Um, but, and that's a sad enough tale as, as it is, but I think what, what makes it doubly sad is what happened on the beach. Um, while the day before, or the night before the necropsy, somebody snuck down to the beach and using a hacksaw had cut out several of her teeth. And I mean, I don't know why, I mean, a trophy for jewelry, who knows? But you can see the cut marks in the teeth where someone started and then it didn't quite work out or the, maybe the saw would, it was binding and they lifted the saw up and tried again. 
So when I requested that the museum get Rhapsody's skeleton, Fisheries and Oceans asked me if I wanted replica teeth made, and I said no, because this abuse of the body is part of her sad tale, so I, I wanted that captured in the specimen. But basically, you can see on this tooth that the crown has been nicked off, but the root still remains, so most of the tooth was still there. Um, so obviously, the people who stole, or individual, I don't know, uh, who stole, stole the, the, the tooth crowns, didn't get away with much, but it's still particularly rude, a rude thing to do to an animal lying dead on a beach. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing with whales. People, people will carve their initials into them while they're lying dead on beaches. Uh, for some reason, uh, these are sentient beings, they're mammals, but it's almost like they're still treated like fish. And uh, so people, people do some very bizarre things to a, like a, to a dead whale. Uh, they'll ride on them, they'll climb on them uh, for their selfie moments, and I, I, I just don't understand it. Yeah. I would think in particular with, with how much people want selfies these days, there's probably a lot more of that than there used to be. And the concept of carving your initials into it, well, I just don't get that at all. Uh, I had a pocket knife when I was a child, and I carved my initials into the willow tree in our backyard and that knife vanished. My dad took it away and he said, you're never getting this back because I, I scarred up a tree. And it was, it was kind of funny because my dad was certainly no environmentalist. He actually designed dams for his, <laughs> his, his living. So, but he certainly did not want me cutting into a live tree with a pocket knife. And it's the same thing with one of these. I, I just can't imagine why people do that. Mark, do you have any questions? Well, this is a, this is a typical skeleton, and it's in beautiful shape. Um, we have skeletons here at the Royal BC Museum with deformities. We've got one that has a little bit of bone cancer. We've got a, a, a Biggs orca T171 with spondylosis, with horrible overgrowth of the lumbar vertebrae. But Rhapsody here, she was in the prime of her life. Her skeleton's in beautiful shape. Uh, no deformities. As far as I can tell, she was basically perfect. Her teeth are really nice. They're not really all that worn. Um, but yeah, the animal's very, it's, it doesn't look all that complex when you've got it all laid out on a floor. You've got the head. The neck is very short and all the vertebrae are compact. And then you've got the thoracic vertebrae. And that's really it for the skeleton. The, their arms are effectively like ours. There's a shoulder blade, a very short, stocky humerus, and radius and ulna. I don't know if you'll get some close-up photos of that, but yeah. um, each vertebra has a neural spine, and the spinal cord runs through that. Lateral processes for muscle attachment. And then they have these caps that we nickname cookies. And uh, each one is unique. You can't put this cookie on any other centrum. It will not fit. They grow together, and as you, if they do fall off, you can rotate and rotate, and eventually it clicks as it pops into place. And there's only one cookie for this side of this vertebral centrum. Uh, we have a humpback whale in the collection where all of the cookies had come off. So it took me two hours to find and as you get through it, you have fewer and fewer cookies to figure out 
and the shape of them is distinctive for each part of the body. So up towards the head, they're almost heart-shaped, and for, they're more round mid-body and towards the tail. So you can kind of narrow down which ones go where. It fits. It was almost recreational, to be honest with you. It's kind of like Lego, but with a real, uh, with a real animal. It was, it was a lot of fun to put one together. I get that. It is like putting together a really, really fascinating three-dimensional puzzle. Yeah. What would be really cool, and I know there are, there are plastic models of orca anatomy, and they've got organs and things. But if there was a way of making a model, scale down obviously, no one has the room for this in their house, to make a, if it was like a 3D scan, 3D print, and make a model so that you could have a three-dimensional killer whale model, just like you have model aircraft or cars, you know, things like that. I, I think that would, be, that would be very popular. I know as a kid I had model dinosaurs that you'd have to assemble and paint and everything. And, and sure, back then I wasn't very good at it, but I think, I think this is something that um, people would enjoy. Yeah. Do you need someone who could scan, basically scan all the Everything, yeah. And figure out? Yeah. And then they, they have to construct the cartridges. Totally yeah. Oh, yeah, it'd be wicked, yeah. We have a bunch of them around our house. Well, we have cats, so hanging worthy. Yeah, that's the problem when you've got pets. They, uh, they do tend to make a mess of things. Uh, and of course, when you've got a model that's this intricate, eventually you'll have to dust it, so you'd have to be careful with that. Yeah. That's the one thing with, with my collection. I, I'm very careful when it's, it comes time to clean them. Yeah. How do you care for for this? Yeah, how do you, like, how do you make The museum out? keeps the air at a, fair, a stable temperature and humidity. Okay. If it's too dry, things get brittle. If it's too wet, things get moldy. And you don't want to be too cold, but you don't want to be too warm. Because it's a trade-off between bones, skins, like we've got birds, we've got mammal skins, we have specimens in alcohol in jars. If it's too warm, the alcohol evaporates, and you don't want that. Um, so keeping things at a, in a museum setting, it, it's a big trade-off between the different objects that you're preserving. Bones are actually fairly simple. Um, there's not much more that could happen to them. They, they will dry out if you let them, but marine mammals are oily to begin with, so they tend to they're much less susceptible than other animals. Um, and the other thing is um, we're perfectly comfortable with people handling them because the oils on your skin will also just do that little bit to help condition the bone. So that, that's just a little bit of oil that will help keep it from drying out completely. So we don't mind if people handle barehanded when they're touching um, the mammal skulls or any other skeletons. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's something we always keep tabs on. We're always watching temperature and humidity. We have sensors around the building. If something gets out of whack, alarms will go off. If our freezers start to warm up, alarms will go off. And sometimes we're called in on weekends to deal with it. It's, it's uh, anyone thinking a museum job is nine to five and you go home and forget about it. It's not the way museum work is. You're always on, you're always thinking about it. I mean, I, I make the joke that these things aren't getting any deader, but <laughs> we don't want them to 
degrade. We want these specimens here for thousands of years. As long as humans exist, we want these specimens available for research and study. And the older they get, the more valuable they become because you can't go back in time to collect a killer whale from 2014. This is now a time capsule. So uh, the, the one neat thing about a museum is you can go back in time, in a sense, and handle specimens from the 1800s. Yeah. Nowhere else can you do that. No one else preser preserves the actual physical evidence from the past. Right. And that's, that's the beauty of museum work. And I, I think a lot of people forget that. that uh, I've got I've got birds here from the 1800s. I've got a I've got a couple of lizards that are now no longer in BC, and they're from uh, 1898. You're never going to see those. You know you can't go back in time to collect two more. So that's why we preserve them. We're very fussy about what we do and how we do it. It's also got its nerd factor. I mean you can't can't deny it. You get to play with bones, and people say, "What do you do?" I say, "Well, I go out and I catch fish and frogs and lizards, and I write about it, and you know." A whale washes up and I get the phone call, do you want it? And then I, I basically talk to my superiors and say, can you commit the funding to get it prepared? Which is, it's thousands of dollars, it's not cheap. And uh, yeah, once, once we commit to it, then yeah, I'm, I'll be taking a drive to go and pick up a, a dead animal. And sometimes it's very smelly, often it's very messy. And uh, yeah, some smaller things I've had at home. You know, uh, I couldn't get into the back to the museum in time, so it'll go in a freezer at home. I had a peregrine falcon at home until recently, and uh, brought it into the museum. It's now here. It's all all the paperwork's done. It's into our system. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a lifestyle choice. We'll just call it that. Yeah, yeah. I think anyone who works at a museum also has a very supportive spouse because. Sometimes you come home, like if I've been moving whales, I will come home smelling like whale fat. And uh, yeah, so it's, there's a little bit of that. The other beauty of it is, because I take the bus, I usually get a seat to myself because no one wants to sit by the stinky guy. <laughs> so I, I do enjoy that. I've, I've stunk up the bus a few times. Usually it's fish, when I'm fish oil and alcohol and you smell really bad and then people just shy away from you. So I'm gonna, I'll try flip this one and hope that, yay, the teeth aren't gonna fall out. Okay. So this basically socket is there, and that. So they're not articulating properly right now because they're not fully aligned as they would have been in life. So this is the one side, and then. I know one of those teeth will fall out of the other side. So this is the actual jaw joint, and that matches up with that part of the dentary bone. So um, mammals are weird in all of the other vertebrate groups, like all other vertebrates have multiple bones that make up the lower jaw. Mammals are unique in having one bone. There's a group of fossil fish as well that had one bone, but we won't walk about, we won't talk about that. But this is one bone, it's called the dentary, and it's no different than our own jaws. The difference between most mammals and toothed whales is that from front to back, the teeth are pretty much the same. They're a simple cone, whereas if you look at your own teeth, you've got incisors, canines, premolars, and molars. And most other mammals have that different series of teeth from front to back. 
It's a heterodont dentition. This is a homodont dentition because they're all basically the same. It's funny when you look at a killer whale's teeth. They're not, they're not sharp, sharp like a shark's tooth. But when you think of the jaw pressure and the fact that they'll grab something and use water as a, almost like a tool, that they don't need to have razor sharp teeth. They can, they can easily create a dotted line and break the food apart. They're uh, impressive. Yeah, you wouldn't want that on your. No. You wouldn't. No. You, yeah, it's, I mean, they're, they're, they're pointy, but they're not, they're not great white shark pointy, you know. I've had shark's teeth that I've accidentally fumbled and cut my hand wide open. Whereas you could, you could probably jab yourself really hard with a tooth like that and then still not draw blood. I don't know. You think if you took that whole thing and clubbed somebody over the head with it, that would uh, hurt. Yeah, that could hurt. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing about the skull, I'll flip it up. Um, if you can angle the... There we go. I knew that one would fall out. So that is the internal opening for the blowhole, so in the back of the throat. Yeah. And that's, most people don't see that. And it's the same anatomy as, as our own mouth, if you think about it. Your, your nostrils open in the back of your palate. So it's, it's no different than us in, in most respects. That's where the vertebrae attach, and that's the opening for the spinal cord. And then if we flip it right up and over, there's the top opening for the blowhole. And then this whole area would be the melon. So, um, oh, so this is the top of the head. Yeah, this is the top of the skull. Oh, okay. So, oh. Yeah, and I, I can't lower it anymore because teeth will fall out. Oh, yeah, so he had it upside down. Yeah, so the, the skull was upside down in the original setup to keep the teeth in place. All of these crests are spots for muscle attachment so um, so when you put it on display is it gonna be is that it'll be right side up yeah it'll be held in a cradle a very oh, carefully okay. constructed cradle that I have to admit is expensive yeah. but you know when you're dealing with something like this you spend the money because in the exhibit this is going to travel globally and I don't want I don't want her damaged Will she be wired together to a certain extent? Yes, there will be, there will be metal frames cradling each bone and supporting it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be very carefully so done. This is, the, this is the bottom then, that's the, that's the bottom part of the, of the head. This is the lower jaw, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So does it and attach so, at the front, the lower jaw? Yes, uh, this, they, the, the two halves of the lower jaw attach here. This area is called the symphysis. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the same thing, it's basically the chin. This is effectively like your hard palate in your mouth. So you can push your tongue up against that. Further back with us, there's a soft palate back here. Uh, a cheekbone of sorts. It's a very tiny little splint, and the eyes would be somewhere back here. Ears sit right there, but they, of course, come off on most whale skeletons, so they, we store them separately. The ears are kind of neat. They're little bulbs or capsules. And they, to me, they almost feel like um, a piece of pottery or ceramics. It's a very different texture. It's a very heavy bone, which must have something to do with uh, acoustic reception. Well, because the ears, the sound vibrates in through the ears and goes up into the melon, and then that's how the echolocation works, right? 
Yeah, well, they, that helps. I think the yeah, melons for focusing it. Um, but yeah, sound can transmit through the jaw as well to the ear because they're intimately connected. They're side by side, which is kind of neat because it's a throwback to reptiles. Because reptiles, uh, they can hear, like snakes, for example, can hear from their using their jaw. So yeah, yeah, beautifully made there. What a, the other impressive thing about the preparation is all the fine details that are, are, are preserved in the specimens. Um, they're incredible. I, I mean, she was put into a, a compost manure pile with some soil and everything to let bacteria and fungi do the really messy work, and then power washed very carefully, but, um, and that gives you an absolute clean skeleton with a minimum of effort on, the, on our part. So you really let nature do most of the work? Yeah, nature does the hard part. Um, we take the majority of the meat off, and then bacteria and fungi will do the rest. The meat itself has to go to a landfill, unfortunately, because it is, they are so high on the food chain that they've accumulated enough toxins that uh, we can't just dump it at sea anymore. Right. I mean, it's, marine animals would recycle it, but you'd be recycling toxic meat which is a no-no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lovely little things. So at the museum we've got, we've got bigs, we've got northern, southern residents, we've got offshores. So all of the ecotypes and groups for BC we have. Um, we do, we're probably biased towards malformed animals because those are the ones that people jump at. Uh, T-171, for example, has such bizarre uh, modification of its vertebrae that um, we couldn't resist taking that one. It was, uh, it's a beautiful specimen. It's very impressive with its deformities. Uh, I would definitely take an animal with scoliosis or other damage because it, it makes an interesting story and it's something that people might want to study. I get people coming every year basically to look at the whales. Uh, I've already got one guy booked for 2019, so he'll be coming in to study them. I think he's going to be here for a whole week. So it'll be another intense week of killer whale work. So what will he be looking for? Not sure off the top of my head, but I can, I can check and see what he's looking for. Um, it might be ecotypes and toothware. That's a hot topic, obviously, but I think it's, as, as far as I'm concerned, that's been done. But he's doing something new, I think, so, yeah. Any super cool questions you were asked by Jason Colby's class the other day that we should make sure you cover it? Interesting question. No, actually, his class was, I think they were surprised at the, the, the volume of material that we had at the museum. A lot of people come to the back room area and they are stunned that we have 22 killer whales, a gray whale, a humpback, beaked whales, dolphins, porpoises, seals, sea lions, and then we go into the terrestrial stuff. So that's, that kind of shocked them that we had that kind of material, like 30,000 some odd mammal specimens. Thanks again for listening to the Scana podcast. Scana is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like the podcast and want to help us share more stories about orcas, oceans, ecoethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. If this podcast doesn't work for you, I'm Amanda Palmer, and this is The Art of Asking. And since we're already asking, please visit us at patreon.com 
backslash Scanna. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Darren Lairn Young, Philip Ashton, Kayla, Rob, Catherine Dodds, Solomon Siegel, and The Green Channel, where you can check out my movie, The Green Chain, and Yusuf Wask. You can also support us at Scanna.org with one-time donations through Ko-fi.com. Scanna is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Sailor Sea, Big Whale, Small World, this is a baby book, so it's completely chewable, and Orcas Everywhere, which features some incredible photos of Rhapsody Skeleton. Now, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It's really easy. Like, you'd go, you just click. Really, really easy. You can do it right now. And subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like world-renowned primatologist Franz DeWall, author of Mama's Last Hug, eco-warrior Alexandra Morton, talking about her must-read new book, Not On My Watch, and Sea Shepherd Captain Paul Watson, talking about his new book, Orcopedia, and the backlash against a certain movie he's in, Seaspiracy. Now, also be sure to check out our show notes at scanner.org so you can see the videos of Rhapsody being put together. Also, subscribe to our Scanna magazine on Medium, which features excerpts from Paul Watson's Wikipedia and a special guest essay from the director of Bright Green Lies, Julia Barnes. Also, follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. Share it with strangers. Share it with enemies. Share it with everybody. It's a pandemic. People have time to listen to podcasts. Also, reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rainbow. Our audio engineer this episode is Tease McKenzie, with an additional audio assist from Isabella Almashi. Thanks to our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown, social media maven Liz Flick Bellis, and our behind-the-scenes heroes, researcher Brian Murphy, and production assistant Harlan Fitzgerald. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Small pool.